All right. You're listening to Priority Onboarding, the podcast where we meet guests who have some quite fascinating work stories. I'm your host, Andre. And I'm Daniel. And today we talk with Hurian Hraf, a chief people officer, advisor, and all-around people enthusiast. We covered some pretty enthralling, yep, that's a word, and it means fascinating, enthralling topics such as self-exploration in the African savanna, differences between working with startups, scale-ups, and more established companies, and a few other topics. Fasten your seatbelts, plug in your headphones, and let's go. You're listening to Priority Onboarding. We are your hosts, Andre and Daniel. Here we talk with guests that have fascinating growth and hiring stories. From startup founders to heads of people, freelancers, recruiters and investors, we cover them all. All right, well, welcome, Yurian. Really nice to connect and to record this episode together. Good to see you after quite some time, I would say, even though Definitely. it's online. Likewise, yes. So we wanted to go straight into the topic. And one thing that piqued my curiosity when I did my research for this podcast was one of the retreats that you had, if I can call it like that, the five-day wilderness trail in the Umfolozi Park in South Africa. Yeah. Specifically, you mentioned that you know you took some time to look back and reflect on your career experience so far. And what we were wondering is if you could share any insights on what reflection process did you use and, and what came out of that? It, it was a quite simple process that we used. So what we did, we were with a small group of five participants, one trainer and two guards who guided us through the, uh, through the park, which was, by the way, really an amazing experience. I would recommend everybody, if you have the opportunity to do it once in your life, and you can do it not only in a park, but you can also go to Norway or Italy and do a night hike there. But um, what we basically did is every morning a trainer gave us a question. So, for example, draw your own lifeline and highlight the moments that were really important to you that were life changing almost. And then you had the day to reflect. So during the walks, you had to be silent. That was uh, also for the animals. So you had to be silent anyway. So it was a nice way of going into yourself uh, to, to intro, uh, introspect. What is it? And then during lunch, sometimes we had chats, but sometimes we also had the opportunity to just sit and almost meditate. Not that it was a formal meditation, but more just relax, sit under a tree or explore the uh, the environment but at the moment you start to think yourself as well and start to reflect on these questions and then in the evening before we had dinner we always had a one and a half hour campfires um, setting where we shared our insights and could reflect on that ourselves but also get some questions so there were no opinions of course it was more like sharing your your insights and but also yeah, helping each other a bit. So there was no formal coaching that much. It was really more like if get a question, reflect on it, and then reflect back on it together. I think my biggest insight was that I liked, I need more flexibility in my work. So take, for example, at the moment, I'm working now for a study troupe, but only three days a week. The other two days, I have time for myself to work on my own projects, to do some freelance work, uh, doing a lot of networking, things like this. 
So that was my biggest insight, just do it. I thought about it a lot. I did it always next to my work. I made quite some money and then I realized I can do with less and have more flexibility and more fun in what I'm doing. So it sounds maybe quite straightforward what the outcome was, but for me, it was really a good insight and really the, the turning point where I thought, yes, I need to change my lifestyle a bit here. So that's what I did. So this is, this is very interesting because in a way, obviously, it's easier looking back to, to see how the dots connect and how it makes sense. But going through the process is actually what, what made it possible. And yeah. so, so then it means that, you know, this was the purpose of the journey. It's not that something popped up and you guys were having fun and then you said, well, let's do this. It was actually from the beginning with this in mind. And then everyone yeah. went through the same process. Definitely. And some people were focusing more on their private life situation, others more on their work life. But everybody came up with something, at least some insights or turning points where they thought, yes, I need to do something different or keep on doing what I'm doing. It's also a good insight sometimes eh? that's, that you think the grass is green on the yes. other side and then suddenly you realize now that's not the case. So, um, yeah. I'm in a way quite similar in that sense because I noticed I get bored easily. So then I need to have my tentacles spread in multiple projects. And obviously there's one main one that it keeps going. And in my case is uh, hiring and recruitment. Yeah. But uh, also this project, this this podcast is a, is a project and uh, it gives me energy. And then, you know, I can switch between projects easily. And that's what keeps me going and, and interested. So I, I totally resonate yeah. with that. Yeah, I'm fully with you. And I think that many people have that. And uh, in many cases, salary is a main reason not to do it. But I just, what I simply did is made an overview of all my, all the, the, the costs that I make in a, on a monthly basis together with my girlfriend. And then I realized, yeah, I can, I can do with less on the short, short term and probably make a lot more on the longer term if I do some of my, uh, if it's some money some in some company, in two companies, and i putting my energy in that, well, maybe in the future that will turn out to be a great investment maybe not but then at least i had this experience and and for me that is really important in life and, and doing the math probably came easy because we saw that you have a tax background initially <laughs> for studies and one thing we discussed with andre and we were curious how did you land in the hr world from a tax background was that a conscious decision or it's kind of like no. you don't choose hr hr chooses you exactly i think it's the, the latter one so i studied tax law and then I had the opportunity to go in two directions, either join uh, one of the big four in, uh, in the tax department, or, and then probably I would have become a tax lawyer and stayed within that domain. Uh, but I also had the opportunity to join KLM as a trainee. And in that traineeship, you did four projects. And one of the projects was in HR. And that was my introduction to HR. Basically, actually, I was a recruiter for the traineeship for half a year. And then I realized this is really a, a discipline that I like, that appeals to me. And then I left KLM and joined Shell. And Shell said, we don't mind what you've studied as long as you have a, a master's degree, then we will help you in your HR career. And we will develop you in that. So uh, for me, it was a great opportunity to get acquainted in the, uh, in the HR world, to introduce into the HR world. And I never left. That's awesome. How do we deal with cases when people that you lead want more flexibility or they want sabbaticals, given <laughs> the fact that you are, went through, through this? You know, for me, it's 
it's not only in my team, eh? because from an HR perspective, we also get the question from many people in the organization. And in the past, it was always normal to treat everybody equally. So that meant that you had a policy saying either uh, it's not allowed or it's allowed for everybody for two, two weeks per year or three months every three years, uh, but you have to be in the, the company for at least uh, a year or two years. Nowadays, that's different. People are already working remote or hybrid. So if my team member would come to me and say, I want to work abroad, for me, it's way more important. What can we do to make that happen without impacting your work too much? Mm. So uh, if it's a really sabbatical, sorry, because you were asking for a sabbatical, not for working remote. If it's really a sabbatical, then we just discuss it and we make it happen. And it really depends then a bit on the team setting. Uh, if the team is a stable condition, fine, you can go. If not, then we might have to discuss the moment that you go. But again, in HR, it's easier to facilitate it than when you are in an operational uh, or customer support role because normally you have to be replaced then. And replacing somebody for two, three months is very difficult. Onboarding somebody, training somebody, making sure that somebody's up to speed. Yeah, that's in, almost impossible. So unfortunately, if you are more in a customer interfacing role, it's more difficult to facilitate it. And therefore, even though it feels maybe unfair, I think you should treat people equal in the same team or same department maybe even, but treating everybody the same in a company then you will lose a lot of talent because it's not possible anymore, especially if people go for a sabbatical and partly work remote and partly take holidays. To be honest, I'm not so much a fan of people going remote, uh, for example, to a totally different time zone in the Caribbean mm. or uh, in Far East Asia, and then say, yeah, I work in the early mornings when you are awake as well. And after that, I'm going uh, kite surfing or something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't really think that works. Maybe for two weeks, but not for three months. But that's my personal. Yeah, that, that makes sense. What I do see is that when C-level people experience different things in their personal life, it also reflects in the company. So mm. I see that when uh, someone has a kid, then maternity or paternity leave in the company becomes important or how yep. to help parents to to deal with that and also the retreat that that you had uh, yep. i guess it also helped you understand your uh, colleagues better uh, if yep. they want to have such uh, experiences yeah no i think it's a, i think i share your observation definitely so then you see the importance of a ceo or c level on the culture of an organization and on the policies of an organization, especially when the CEO is also the founder, they have a very strict belief in how it should be. And that can be very contradictive because at one hand, they are really, they put all their energy, their lives into this company and they almost expect it from everybody. So whenever somebody comes to them and say, yeah, maybe I'm gonna take off for four, uh, four weeks for paternity leave or, or parental leave or, I want to go on a sabbatical. They they don't understand because they all they work towards an exit, which is probably two, three, five years away. They want to be successful, so it will never cross their mind. They can't really understand. Even they don't want to understand it. On the other hand, they know rationally, so that's more emotion. Rationally, they understand. I want to keep the top talent. I want to under. And I know that all the surveys show that I, that I need to be a creator, create a flexible environment, 
provide a lot of nice benefits next to salary. And, but that is really a catch-22 emotion that almost each founder, each every founder has it, and most CEOs have it as well. And then sometimes you're lucky that they go through a live event that many others in the organization go through as well, and suddenly they create the opportunity. Uh, but I've, I've also seen CEOs who were different because then they get a child and you would expect them to to have a different mindset, but then they say, yeah, but I have a partner at home who does everything, so why don't you have that? Because you should give all your energy to the company. So it, it, sometimes it works to even, I can make it happen with two kids and still give my full energy to the company. Why you? Why not you? So it can also work uh, contradictive. Might be a bit of a very open question, but now you have experienced multiple realities. So working with multiple CEOs and founders from different company size and different backgrounds. Have you developed uh, an approach, not to call it a framework, but an approach when it comes to dealing with this? Because obviously everyone's different and you cannot change the people unless something happens in their life and they change their view themselves. But do you have an approach when you come in? How do you work with uh, different personalities, different worldviews when it comes to C-level, especially founders? I can't say if many of my colleagues do that as well. I think everybody starts to scan the organization but what i try to do instead of having i have a backpack with a lot of tools sources experts in my backpack that i can use to make a company successful but i do realize that whenever i start a new company the ceo especially when it's a founder together with the c-level management have a huge impact on how the company is managed the ways of working the culture etc so instead of scanning or assessing what the company doesn't have uh, according to the HR standards, I rather talk to C-level management and see how they run the company and what their beliefs are in how the company should be run and what we can do to make it more effective and efficient. Then I know how they want to approach it, what their beliefs are, and I also understand a bit their personality. So are they very stubborn or are they willing to learn, to change, to make it different. And for example, do they have a very result-driven approach or is it more a people-driven approach or a process-driven approach? You, you both work for Aidens. I think the way that company was managed was very process-driven. Everything had to be 100% right. And that's also why they really liked your way of working because you followed a very strict process. And uh, Stepano is an example for me who put in place a very strict process. And if, when we started to when we started to follow that, you basically got this machine running and that worked really well. Where in other companies, they don't believe in that. They just want a result. They, was the, they want the best candidate in and they, they don't mind how they get it in. Uh, it's fine if you use your own recruiters, uh, external companies, whatever is needed to, to get the persons in. and no matter what it costs, etc. So it can really differ per sea level how they want to approach it. So for me, next to the fact that, of course, I have my own standards, how I think the company should run it, but I also learned that always tailor it to the needs and the beliefs of the sea level. Otherwise, you are in a constant conflict and it will never work. And the company also won't benefit from it because in the end, I create frameworks. Uh, I put in place processes, policies, etc. But if the leaders don't believe in it, don't follow it, are not willing to be ambassadors of it, it will never work. 
So rather than starting with assessing what is not there, I would start you know, getting to know the management very well and make sure that you align with their perspectives and make sure that you then implement stuff that they embrace as well so that you can create a winning uh, HR strategy rather than putting something in place that will never work because they don't believe in it or no, don't support it. That makes sense. And I think also from our brief interaction uh, working together, you know, there are people that or like managers that are very involved in the process, any kind of process. I really want to dive in into how to and why and, and, and when and everything. And there are people on the opposite spectrum, which are more kind of laissez-faire, they care about uh, the end goal, not necessarily the how you get there, as you mentioned previously. And each of them have their own, you know, time and place. But I think in my experience with you, I think you would be more on the uh, let's get this done and then how you do it up to you, but let me know if you need any help. Yeah, And that's usually, that tends to be quite empowering because, you know, in the end, uh, you can use your own best strengths and skills and tools, and then you, you just get the work done as yeah. long as the person is independent. What I was curious to also ask you is about the, the window concept that I saw mentioned in mm. one of your uh, articles, in particular around people, internal mobility. Especially, for example, coming back to the previous topic with uh, someone working part-time. So I guess there are two mixed topics here. But first one is, do you think that there's an extent to which someone working part-time, it affects their career progression? So they're less likely to be promoted, even though they score the same results or they work on the same projects with someone else? Yeah. And the part-time can be for various reasons, right? Do you think that that has a direct correlation or not at all? I wish I would have said there's no correlation. But in the current, I think getting to the top means you need to work very hard. With all podcasts that I've listened to with managers, CEOs, C-level founders, what is the, the commonality that I see? It's not that they're the best managers. It's not that they have a belief and they're probably very smart or streetwise or whatsoever. But one thing they all have in common is that they worked really hard. And there's no, dis no difference there between corporates where CEOs or C-level or senior management came to the top and uh, startups and scale-ups, uh, how they got where they are. So if you take that into account and then reflect on the question that you ask here, I think it's almost impossible to get where you are and manage your organization well and be the ambassador, being around, being visible without working really hard. And some people are more effective in that. And I'm not saying you can't run as a, as a CEO or a C-level for an organization for four days a week, but that's really the exception on the exception. And it's not only physically being present or doing all the work, but also mentally making sure that you are able to focus on your job all the time is more difficult. Yeah, your experience, probably I'm experiencing it with a child now. Uh, Andre, I don't know if you have a family, but it's really, yeah, that is more difficult. And everybody that I know that really got to the top either is single or has just a partner, but is not impacted by any family life uh, in that way, or has a partner at home who is way more flexible. And it can be a man or a woman, eh? so I'm not saying it's all in men. It's, there's always someone at home 
who's more flexible through that you put in the hours that are needed to yeah uh, yeah. yeah so um my experience is just from daily practice you really need to work hard to get on the top and therefore part-time working together with growing fast through the uh but what I do see, and then you come back maybe also to the second point, but uh, on the windows. But what I really liked about a company like Shell is they they focus, and that's really different with a scale up a startup, yeah? because startups and scale ups are focused on short term success. They want to grow immediately and work towards an exit. That's a different mindset than when you are a CEO or C level of a large organization where your company is established, you have shareholders or whatsoever. You're a public company, maybe even. Then the focus is way more on the long term. So you're also looking at your people from a longer term perspective. You want to keep them. You want to grow them through the system. So you're going to look at potential talent and not only on success in the current job and maybe one job further. This potential thing means that if you focus on that, you will find people who are not able to maybe meet the expectations and growth perspective during a certain period in their lives. For example, when they get kids or somebody gets ill in the organization. But if you're a true believer of potential, you can then basically give that people person the flexibility, either freeze their, their growth for a while, but be very clear, you are still this potential. So when you are ready for it again, let us know and we take you through the, the pipeline again. Or, and I saw that at Shell happening uh, quite a lot. So quite a few, women who are identified as senior high potential. So high potentials for really senior, the top level positions, they were just given jobs during the, the, the time that their kids were small, uh, both men and women, but back, back then it were more women, of course, um, who, um, who got jobs that were more remote. So they could have a lot of flexibility, were still challenging jobs. And once they said, okay, I'm back in uh, full business again, they were immediately promoted to very senior roles and grew further on the ladder. So that was for me really fantastic to see. And I haven't seen that much after that at other companies where I worked because yeah, that, that's a very sophisticated uh, next level way of potential management. And also planning. probably in a scale up or a smaller company, you have less opportunities to do what you could probably call stretches. Yeah. So therefore, you know, it's kind of limited to whatever comes up in terms of work and maybe it's not yeah. predefined in terms of yeah. set of responsibilities. So it's more like whatever you pick up extra yes. besides your role, I think. But I was curious if you can explain a bit the window concept, how you see it when it comes to uh, people mobility, because I thought yeah. it was a really interesting approach. So the, the window concept is, I learned that at Shell, uh, what we had there is when, when you start in a new role, you and the manager agree a certain window. And that's the period that you will do the job. For example, three years was quite standard back then. When you agree a three-year window, then you basically agree that if you want to leave earlier than the three years, you first go to your manager and start the conversation, why you want to leave, explain it. Well, then you either both agree, and we, we think it's better to go, and then your window was opened and you could, you were you, you were able to apply somewhere else. If you agreed to stay, then you stayed. And, to, and that happened to me. I wanted to leave after a year. My manager said, well, I can't miss you now, but I will promise you in half a year, there will be an opportunity for you that will be 
very attractive. And then, indeed, a year, half a year later, she kept her promise, and I got an opportunity that uh, probably brought me where I'm today. So I'm really happy with that. Having that transparent conversation really helped me, and helped a lot of people within Shell. After the three years, you were free to go. Yeah, it's free to go. Sounds so hard, but everybody knew. Okay, we uh, that person is going to leave unless you agree to another uh, window. With the result that both for the manager and the employee, there was a lot of transparency on when the person was likely to be leaving. And you could manage that. So you could start to find a successor in time. So succession planning was a very transparent process there as well. Internal mobility was managed from that perspective. So everybody knew what was going to happen. So it was a very transparent, open, and fair process, and it worked really well. And funny enough, when I introduced that to other companies, Friesland Campina, Foker, Nordhoff, immediately the Works Council, but also senior management, and people started to challenge it because they said, yeah, but that means that I have to be transparent to my manager and that can be used against me. And I really, because I never felt that negative trust, uh, never that negative trust thing, because a child that wasn't there, it really took me a while to understand, okay, apparently it asks a lot just mentally from people to understand this, this, this concept, embrace it, and really truly work with it. This is a really cool concept. And I think it, it's very similar to what Reid Hoffman also mentions about tourist duties. And uh, again, transparency is very important in that and, and then aligning with uh, your, your team members in what they want to do, where they want to get and how as a manager you can help them uh, get there. Do you think everybody should have the same time frame and how should managers deal with that, the, the time frame for each no, uh, member? Definitely not. not. Because then again, nobody is equal, but also no job is equal. So in a senior role, management role, if you want to see the impact that you make, I do believe you should do that role at least three years before you really see the impact of what you bring into the team. But if you are a junior salesperson... Is there uh, a reason why three years? Sorry for interrupting. Why, uh, Why three? It could even be longer, but the first year you're just onboarding, getting to know the team, putting people in place, replacing some people, maybe building the team. Then you need to make the team effective. That journey to to work towards an effective team probably also takes a year. And then you want to really experience how it is to work in a high-performing team and get, uh, and also the, and, and, and get the benefits of that. And maybe after three years, some, maybe four years, it's ready to go as a manager because then maybe it's good also for the team to have somebody else there again and get new blood in there. And But also the team probably starts to change. So, yeah. And it depends again. It depends also per role. I can imagine that on a factory or in a support role, it's fine if somebody stays longer because, yeah, the, the team's changing. You want to keep also the, the knowledge. So in an expert role or an expert in a, yeah, in a management role on an expert team, probably it's a bit longer. But again, I think a three-year tenure is a kind of average that would work for a manager to uh, to really show that the person is successful. And then the million-dollar question, how would you adapt this to a scale-up world where, let's say, you don't really know a couple of years in advance what the next opportunities would be for your peers along the line? If you think it would work for a scale-up, if you already have done it, maybe you already have some examples, but I'm curious, how would you adapt something like this yeah. to a scale? I haven't really 
done it yet in a way that <laughs> works really well. But in general, I think it will work, at least if you are if you have very transparent conversations with your employee, what is your ambition? Where do you want to grow to? Where do you see yourself in three to five years? And what can we do to help you to get there? And if we can't offer that to you, we accept that you will leave. And it's up to the person to leave, but at least you have the transparent conversation about it. And we are then able to manage this personal journey of that person. So we also know what to expect. So if we know that the person is there and wants to move on and we it won't be internally, then we know that and we can manage that by hiring a new person or promoting someone or uh, whatever needs to be done to uh, fill that gap in time. So it's not a surprise, but it's we can we can really manage it up front. I even had an, an, an idea a couple of years ago by setting up a, like a, a shell has this internal ecosystem of 100,000 people where it's easy to, to make uh, career ladders in, within. Why should you not do it for, for example, my CEO, he has a, a WhatsApp group of 80 companies or CEOs of 80 companies. Well, maybe they're all SaaS companies. They probably are, some of them are competitors to each other. But why not creating a kind of talent pool where you say, at least for certain jobs, tech jobs or sales jobs, if we are not able to provide Probably. career steps or, or uh, next opportunities, maybe we can organize it within that ecosystem of 20, 30, 40 companies, similar, and maybe not similar sizes. You should have companies then that are a bit different in where they are, and startups and scale-ups, so they can really exchange people. And then maybe uh, how I see it in a startup, you start, uh, you grow, then you move to another company that's more in a scale-up phase, and maybe that startup, uh, then a new startup comes up and needs a, like a, a junior CCO. Well, then that person who made a career step in that uh, scale-up moves back to that uh, startup world. The difficulty here is that quite a few people are really fit into star startups, other fit into scale-ups, but it's not necessarily said that people fit in both so it doesn't always work but yeah i you, see this already are... happening yeah? somehow to a certain extent especially the more senior role so if you're talking sea level yeah. in the netherlands it's a small country it's a small world so it it, it tends to be at a, at a certain level that most people know each other yeah so then it becomes a close circle and i see this mostly happening when it comes to ceos and founders connecting with each other that are not uh, direct competitors and in hiring processes so let's say i'm hiring for a cfo or cmo or whatever and yes. i found my person but we also had two very strong runner-ups it's just a matter of timing or something else that it didn't work out but i would still yeah. like to introduce those people to my peers because it would benefit them so these introductions i see them they do happen and they usually tend to be fruitful yeah yeah because you don't start a... completely yeah. from scratch it's it's really the referral process on senior level, and that's uh, I see it in HR, of course, as well. It's just a, quite a small world of HR heads of people at scale-ups that that yeah that just rotates between companies, which makes sense and which is fine. You have quite an interesting journey coming from a corporate world and and now focusing more on on the scale-up world, star world. How come you took this step and not stayed in the the corporate uh, world? Yeah, I like the question. I think it had to do already back then with the, my thought of being more flexible. In the corporate world, it's quite organized. So you know exactly what to expect. You have your policies in place. 
companies are quite old, processes are there, all the stake the stakeholder field is clear, you have a works council, you have your C level, you have employees. And for me it was if I would have moved from Nordhof, my my last corporate company, to another corporate company of similar size or similar industry or similar well, similar kind of yeah, probably size. I would have done the same what I had done already in the past. And I really wanted to grow an organization because at corporates, a lot is around transitioning, transforming, restructuring, reinventing, but it's not really growing. It's more replacing. And I wanted to experience how it is to grow a company. And I wanted to experience the new economy. So I want to go into tech. And it was quite difficult because back then I noticed when I was applying to jobs that it was quite difficult to get into this new economy world because, and also the startup scale up world, simply because I didn't have that experience. So they also thought that I would be too corporate for it, bring these process, etc. which is by the way, bullshit, huh? because um, the same questions, the same challenges, the same issues occur at startups and scale ups that occur at corporates. The only thing is you organize it more pragmatic in a more pragmatic way at startups and scale ups than you do at corporates. A bit over time, I see now I started to, when you get to 200, 300 people, most people working there for money, not just for, and also a bit of fun, but not really anymore for this family feeling. You just need to have these, these, all these practices in place that you also have at corporate. And then Aidens came and they, because they were a very process driven organization, they wanted somebody from a corporate who could bring in all the processes that we were that they were looking for and therefore i had the opportunity to join start uh, the, the start of uh, aidens i was the 20th hire yeah that is how i came in and i never left and to be honest i probably won't leave in the coming years because i really again i really enjoy the the flexibility but also the opportunity to grow organizations to recycle organizations to it is exciting and it is moving very fast paced one one last question that we usually ask our guests especially uh within your field as people leaders what would be some common pitfalls that you see other people leaders uh falling into and, and how could those be avoided well i think the biggest uh, i don't know if it's the biggest pitfall but and what we discussed earlier about leadership roles i see a lot of my colleagues struggling with senior management, especially founders who are very stubborn and have a true belief in how it should be. And they get a bit fed up with that sometimes because they have a true belief how it should be as well. And that can conflict with the, the ideas of the founders. So one pitfall would be be too stubborn yourself on how you see how it is. And I think a bit of stubbornness is okay because you also should put your own uh, stamp on, on the organization and your, you also have your beliefs. but. Um, being a bit pragmatic, I think, really helps. Not a pitfall. As I said already, I think corporate people really bring a lot of perspective and, and good quality to the startup scale-up world. So don't be afraid of hiring them. I think way more important is that you have someone who is able to execute themselves uh, and be uh, uh, being an executor. And I think I would select people on that rather than on... Uh, if they are corporate or not, um, you need to be flexible, pragmatic, proactive, executionable, or you need to execute stuff like that. Um, is there another real big pitfall? 
It's a good question because I, you know, I think that many startups and scale-ups, what they do is they hire a recruiter and then promote that person to a to an yes. HR person. Yes. And then over time, it, it they struggle with that because the the person is not senior enough yes. to really deal with the, the the complexity, but also the the, the especially the stakeholder. Managing so this is not so much a pitfall of the HR person itself. It's more a pitfall of the uh, the founder again and the management level who wants to hire a cheap operational person where you also miss the more seniority. And that's why, but maybe that's my, what I see a lot happening is many of these founders and C-level, they want a very senior HR person in their leadership team. At the same time, they expect that person to do a lot of execution because they're too small to get out of it. And therefore, my I think the biggest pitfall that companies can make is that they hire a too senior person for a too operational role, uh, where I would go for a construction where you have a senior person only there for two days a week, but just helping you on this on the senior strategy part, but also on the stakeholder management part, and then have someone else four or five days a week who runs the execution, who does the execution. That combination works really well. And then they also always say, yeah, but we're still too small for that. Yeah, and what they then do is hire a two junior person and they lack then the, the They seniority. pay the price afterwards, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, and, and, and I would guess that they would also like to work with each other because the executioner can learn from the strategist and the strategist, like everybody likes to teach others, right? Because they feel yeah. useful. Yeah, definitely, yeah. 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 But you, you're not going to hire me when uh, what Aidens did and I worked there for four days a week and they were willing to pay a lot. But uh, what they basically did is they could also have hired me, uh, in hindsight, they could have hired me for two, maybe three days a week. And we and spent uh, one third of my salary on a more operational person. And over time we had that extra operational person, but that would have made way more sense than how we did it back then. And the same for StudyTube now. Yeah, I have a strong operational manager uh, running recruitment and the daily operations that works really well and i'm only there for three days a week focusing on leadership c-level stakeholder management and some putting some important processes uh, a, a total reward strategy in place stuff like that but sounds like there's another topic of discussion about fractional roles opening up in in the world of, of work and how would that work because uh, that's yeah, something definitely. exciting but yeah. uh, thank you very much, Jurin. Uh, this was a really, really interesting discussion. I really enjoyed it as well. So thank you both. I really liked the open conversation that we had. Uh, you had some very good questions. It went totally different than I expected. So <laughs> I really loved it. So we might do a part two because I think I, I feel like there's uh, there are also other topics that I wanted to address, but it might be a good part two. Let's see how I it goes. I would love to do it. Cool. Thank you so much. Thank you.